Good morning, Redemption. Have you ever heard the phrase, it's not you, it's me? It's not you, it's me. That's a phrase we use when we want to get out of a relationship. And we know when we hear that phrase that it's actually a, is about them, it's about the other person. It could be they've got bad breath, or maybe they're nitpicky, or you got to know them better and you find out, man, they just got some outrageous opinions. Maybe you got to know their parents, and you're like, yeah, I don't know that I want them for my in-laws, right? But rather than addressing those things head on, there's an easy out. You just use the phrase, like, it's not you, it's me. Now, I'm sorry if you've been told that recently. I, I don't want to burst your bubble. But the reality is when you want to get out of a relationship, a culture, you're kind of, kind of trying to weasel out without dealing with the real issue. It's easy to say, hey, it's not you, it's me. What we're going to see today is that when you want to get into a relationship, particularly with the creator of the universe, all you got to do is flip the phrase. You should say, hey, it's not me, it's you. God, it's actually not about me, God, it's about you. That actually, when I look at myself, I am a bit of a mess. I ain't all that. But God, as I look at you, you've got your stuff together, and you're the one that at an even deeper level I was made for. So God, it's not about me. It's about you. We're in John 1 today, and we're going to be introduced to John the Baptist. And John the Baptist in the scene, he's got people handing him, coming after him, going, Who are you? Who are you? Who are you? And he continually deflects. He, he turns it back, and he says, No, it's not about me. It's about him. That is, John looks to Jesus, he goes, it's not me, it's you. Right? And as we're going to find today, when you make your life about Jesus, you find who you really are. So let's turn to John 1 today. And we're going to start, pick up here in verse 19. It says, and this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, Well, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptized. All right, well, the first thing we see here is that it's not about me. Right, like John the Baptist says, hey, it's not about me. He's got all these folks coming going, who are you? And John, uh, in context here, we read that these priests and Levites from Jerusalem are coming to John. And this is like a delegation from D.C., from the capital, who are coming to scope out this movement, John the Baptist, and this baptism movement that is uh, following him. And this movement was controversial in the day. Why was it controversial? Uh, baptism was actually a common practice in Judaism, uh, but it was for people who were converting from the Gentiles from outside the faith, converting to Judaism to enter into the faith. And so baptism was commonplace, but John here is baptizing Jewish people. And so there's a sense of it being like a renewal movement, of people re-upping their commitment to Israel's God. And so these people are coming and saying, all right, Johnny B, like, who are you? Uh, what gives you the authority to do this? And John answers them, giving them three I am nots and three I am's. 
he says, uh, you know, I am not the Christ, I am not Elijah, I am not the prophet. Then he goes on to say, but I am a voice, I am a baptizer, I am a slave. Now let's take a look at each of those identities, and let's start with the things he says he is not. <clears throat> so first he says, I'm not Christ, I'm not Elijah, I'm not the prophet. And these are in kind of a descending order of significance. So it'd be like them coming and going, hey, John, are you the president? No. Well, are you the vice president? VP? No. Well, are you at least a governor of a state or something? He's like, no. And they're like, well, what gives you the authority to do this? He's kind of going, man, I'm an MC. Like, I'm announcing the inauguration of the king. I'm a voice preparing the way for the incoming of the king. Now, these three identities, these three things he says he's not. The Christ, that was like the Messiah, uh, the king of Israel, who's going to come and restore the kingdom and establish uh, God's reign on the earth. And so John's going, I'm not that. The second one, Elijah, that was uh, a prophet from the Old Testament that before the Messiah would come, uh, Israel had the strong belief of, in Elijah, the forerunner, who was going to pave the way for the coming of the Christ. And so we actually see this in the Bible in Malachi 4, verse 5. At the end of your Old Testament, as you kind of read through your Bible, it's one of the last verses in your Old Testament, right before we get to the coming of Jesus in the New Testament. And it says this, God says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So there was this expectation, and Jewish expectation actually held an empty seat every Passover for Elijah. As they were celebrating and anticipating God's coming deliverance, they held the seat for Elijah, the forerunner who paved the way. At the end of every Sabbath, to kind of close the Sabbath of one week and to bring in the ushering in of the new week, uh, Elijah was included in their prayer to God for the restoration to come, the beginning of this new week, symbolized. So Elijah was this big figure of messianic expectation. We can think of him as kind of like the forerunner or something like the VP for the Messiah who's coming. And they say, John's like, okay, I'm not the Christ, I'm not the... Elijah, well, are you the prophet, they ask. What do they mean by that? Well, the prophet was also this figure of expectation. We find Moses in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. He tells the people, he says, Hey, the day is going to come where the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And so Christ, Elijah the prophet, these were all like these really important figures the people were anticipating. So John the Baptist, he's like, I ain't him, I ain't him, I ain't him. And they're like, well, then who are you? And he gives them three images for who he is. First, he says, I am a voice, like a voice in the wilderness saying, make way, make straight the highway for the incoming of our God. Right? And here he's quoting Isaiah 40. And this uh, passage, Isaiah 40, it's about the coming of Yahweh, of Israel's God, to restore and redeem his people. He goes on to say, a voice in the wilderness, prepare the highway, make straight the road for, for God, for Yahweh as he comes. Uh, the mountains we brought low and the valleys lifted up. It's this picture of the proud and haughty being brought down and the lowly being lifted up. The establishment of justice, preparing the way for the incoming of God. So John, essentially here, he's going, I'm a voice. I'm like, I'm not LeBron. I am the announcer at the beginning of the game who's getting the crowds riled up and ready going, come on everyone, get up to your feet and clap your hands and prepare the way. In comes King James, right? Only here, it's King Jesus. He's getting the crowds ready. He's getting Israel ready for the incoming entrance of King Jesus. John also says, he's not only a voice, he's 
a baptizer, that he's come to baptize. And here, this picture of he's washing people, cleansing them as they are dedicating themselves to the coming of the king. You can think about this like if you're getting ready, someone important is coming over to your house for dinner. Uh, you don't want them showing up when you're in your PJs and your hair's a mess. So what do you do? You take a shower, you clean yourself up, you get yourself ready for your visitors, your guests, right? Someone John especially here is saying, hey, the king is coming to town, so I'm going to wash you. Let's get yourself washed and ready and prepared. Your heart's aligned and your lives oriented around the coming of his kingdom. John's prepared to people who are washed and waiting for the coming of Israel's king. John says he's a voice, he's a baptizer, and then he also says he's a slave, in essence. He says, man, I'm not even worthy. When it comes to who Jesus is, I'm not even worthy to untie the sandals on his feet. And now, untying the sandals, that was like the, your feet were the lowest place on your body. They were the place that got dirty from walking around in sandals all day. And so, uh, untying the sandals was like the lowest position in society. And John's going, when it comes to Jesus, I'm not even worthy of that. So there's an interesting progression here where this passage opens with him going, hey, are you the president? Right? Or are you the Christ, the Messiah, like the highest figure? And John keeps going, no, 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 and working himself all the way down until he goes, dude, I'm not even a slave. Like, I'm not even worthy of touching Jesus' feet. John's essentially saying here, it's not about me. It's about him. Like, you're asking me, who are you? And what you should be asking is, who is he? John the Baptist points us to a powerful reality here. It's that there's a freedom that comes when you can say, it's not about me. It's not about me. And that's a challenge today because we live in a world that says, hey, it is all about you. Everything revolves around you. Uh, the message today can often be, hey, build your following, get on Instagram, put yourself out there. Uh, build your movement, get around your influencers, establish an identity and a name for yourself. And the way you do that is you tap into your identity, tap into who you are, and express that out to the world. So there can be a pressure to kind of go, okay, well, who am I? The world, it's like the world's asking, who are you? And we can tap into, well, what is my uniqueness? What makes me different from or stand out from the crowd and everyone else out there? Uh, or it can be like, hey, what, you can tap into your struggle, kind of go, okay, what makes me uh, worthy of sympathy or empathy? What are things that would resonate with people to, to draw them towards me? And the reality is, living this way, as if the world revolves around you, can have it, its costs. Over time, oh, man, we got to perform, I got to uh, constantly like tap into more inside of me, even if I feel like I'm out. And that can generate this anxiety. Essentially, there's a philosopher named Byung Chul Han, and he talks about today us living in what he calls both a society of tiredness and a society of transparency. And he sees those two things as related. And the idea is, historically, he would say, like, our identity was something that we received from outside in, like whether from our family or tradition or our community, and we start to mold our lives, and um, at times I could have problems, like we get exploited or different things like that, but there was a sense that like my identity is re received from the outside in. And yet today, we live in what he calls an achievement society, but since I need to craft and carve out my identity from the inside out, that we move from a society of what you should do to what you can do. Like, there's no barriers, everything, uh, everything is, uh, there's no limitations. The question is, uh, who are you? What can you do? There's nothing you can't do. 
And constantly living out of this, while it can seem liberating at first, over time, it can leave us feeling exhausted and depressed in this constant cycle of self-reference. We see this in teens today, that there have just been spikes in rates of anxiety, of depression, of suicide. And it's tragic, and a lot of that, uh, Han would argue, it comes from the weight of having to constantly generate and maintain this identity for yourself before the world. I believe John the Baptist points us to a way of freedom, saying, dude, there's something freeing about going, it's not about you. That we need a Copernican revolution of the self, so to speak. And what I mean by that, the Copernican revolution was the sense that back in the day, we all thought that the universe revolved around us, that the sun and the moon and the planets and everything were revolving around the earth. We were the center of orbit and everything else was kind of revolving around us. The Copernican revolution was going, no, it ain't about us. It doesn't revolve around us. We actually revolve around it, around the sun. That we're actually orbiting around something else that's bigger and greater. And similarly for us, I think a lot of us today can uh, live under that weight of feeling like everything's revolving around me and I have to express and keep myself kind of out there. And the beauty of the gospel, John the Baptist would say, is it ain't about you. Like There's a freedom that comes when we kind of recognize that it's actually not about me, Jesus. It's about you. That he is the center of our universe. And we can orbit our lives, so to speak around him. And if you don't think that Jesus is more glorious than you, then you either haven't yet seen Jesus as he truly is, or you haven't yet taken a good look in the mirror, an honest look, and right? getting honest about what you're really at. And that true freedom, you see here, it's not just knowing who you are, it's also knowing who you're not. There's true freedom that's found in going, I am not the center of the universe. I am not the savior, the, I'm not the one who can fix all the problems. The world doesn't revolve around me. We're not all that. And when we can recognize that and look to Jesus, we don't need to pretend anymore, kind of ignoring our faults or our weaknesses or insecurities. We can actually bring those to the table and get honest with who we really are. Yet the beauty is that when we do that, Jesus loves turning MCs into VPs. Like Jesus loves turning people who are captivated with who he is, uh, announcing who he is and all, and turning them into VPs, like vice presidents, like co-regents, people who's going to lift up to reign and rule alongside with him. We see this here in the passage where John says, I'm not Elijah, but it's interesting. We read elsewhere in the gospel, Jesus says he is Elijah. And so what's going on there? Is that a contradiction that John says he's not Elijah, Jesus says he is Elijah? Well, no, I think the uh, answer is an easy one. It's just that Jesus knows you better than you know yourself. Right? And Jesus goes on to say, like, there's been no one greater than John. He's the great Elijah who is to come and prepare the way and who is participating in the inbreaking of my kingdom in this way. We need Jesus to tell us who we really are. Like you may come to Jesus feeling like you're worthless, but then you find Jesus tells you that you're beloved. You may come feeling like you're an inconvenience and Jesus calls you helper. You may come thinking you're simply a victim, but Jesus says, no, you're a survivor. 
You may come going, Jesus, I'm weak on my own. You encounter Jesus saying, yeah, but you're strong in me. You might find yourself going, man, I, I am tired from striving to be unique and keep myself out there and all. And you find Jesus going, you don't, it's okay to be ordinary. You don't need to fight for attention. Folks see you, I see you. You may come to Jesus feeling hopeless. And he says, hey, you're destined for glory. I love that song. There's a song we sing, I am who you say I am. And I love that song, who you say I am. And there's something powerful about it that works both ways. That Jesus both asks us, like, hey, who do you say that I am? You know, flip that question as well. And it's powerful for us to ask Jesus, Jesus, who do you say I am? We no longer have to create an identity for ourselves. We can receive our core identity from him who he calls us as his own. This means that you can come to Jesus feeling like you're on the bottom rung, like lower than a slave. And yet he delights to raise you up to reign alongside him. Like you might come going, Jesus, I'm not even worthy to untie your sandals. But in the gospel, you find Jesus bending down on his knees to untie yours pulling out the towel to wash your dirty feet. You might find yourself going, man, Jesus, man, I, I, I'm not worthy. Like, I would die if you're in my presence. He just says, no, I died so that you could be in my presence. Jesus, we need Jesus to tell us who we really are. So for our first discussion question here, I, I want us to discuss, or if you're by yourself, you can process, reflect on this question. Just going, what are, uh, what are some of the ways that um, making it about you, like me center culture can be exhausting. What are some of the ways it's freeing to actually make it about Jesus? To be able to say like, it's not me, God, it's you. How is that free? Let's talk about that now.
All right, let's keep reading. Picking up here in verse 29. It says, the next day, so this is the day after, uh, John the Baptist, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came, baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. All right, well, John here contrasts sin versus Spirit. Sin versus spirit. Uh, now he's talking about who Jesus is. He says Jesus is the sin bearer and the spirit bringer. And he is the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And he is the baptizer who brings in the spirit of God. Just before this, we saw John was talking about who he is, who he's not, who he is. Uh, but here he's talking now about who Jesus is. Going, it's not about me, it's about him. And here's who he is. He is the sin bearer and the spirit bringer. He's the lamb and the baptizer. Now, it's interesting to me that for John here, he seems to imply like the opposite of sin is the spirit, which is interesting because we tend to think, man, the opposite of sin is like good behavior and getting my act together and those kind of things. But John presses us deeper here to say, no, the opposite of life apart from God is life in the presence of God. People throughout church history kind of wrestle with what is that the root of sin? What's kind of the ultimate deepest root of it? And some would say it's autonomy, like wanting to live on our own apart from God. Others would say it's kind of being curved in on yourself rather than being curved outward in love of God and others. Others would say it's pride, kind of exalting yourself over against God. Um, but what all of these have in common is that it's ultimately this form of self-reliance, of centering things around me. But what Jesus, we see here, Jesus moves us from self-reliance to spirit-reliance. So again, going, it's not about me, it's about you. It's not about me, whether how good I've been or how bad I've been. It's about you and who you've been for me. I'm placing my faith and trust in you, Jesus. I love uh, C.S. Lewis kind of boils it down and says, at the end of the day, there are two kinds of people. There are those who say to God, thy will be done. And there are those to whom God says, thy will be done. And so as we look to Jesus, and we say, it's not me, it's you, it's about you, Jesus. Who is this Jesus that we're invited to, to place our trust in, our faith in? Well, John says here that Jesus is the sin-bearing lamb. Let's take a look at that for a moment. Jesus is the lamb. Now, lambs, sacrificial lambs in Israel, uh, they function like sponges, right? They were like sponges that soaked up the sin of the people. They kind of absorbed the mold and rot and decay that our rebellion against God had unleashed in the fabric of the community and of our lives. And so John essentially was going, man, Jesus is a better lamb. He is a better sponge. Like he's better than brawny. He's tougher than SpongeBob. Like he is, man, he's, he's stronger and more absorbent than Swiffer, right? Like Jesus is able to soak up the sin of the world and take it out the trash. So Jesus is the lamb, and it's interesting, John says he, he, uh, he takes away the sin of the world. 
It's just me that he says singular sin rather than plural sins. Uh, he says the sin of the world, it's like sin is like this concept. I love there's a theologian, Fleming Rutledge, and she talks about how um, there's both capital S sin and lowercase s sin. Right? And often we're good at focusing on kind of lowercase s sin, like more like sins, actions, things that we do and all. But there's this deeper picture in the Bible of sin. It's like this pervasive force and power that we've unleashed in the world that's tearing our world apart. Uh, have you ever seen kind of things going on in the world? It seems like, man, this evil, like this seems more than just like actions. It seems like an infection. Like these actions, they seem more than just like a cut on the skin. They seem like an infection in humanity's bloodstream, in our bloodstream as a people. I know for me, I've seen this, man, like in areas that have been affected by genocide. So I've had a chance to spend a lot of time in Rwanda and Cambodia over the years, two places that were both affected by two of the world's worst genocides in the 20th century. And in both of them, talking with survivors who lived that era, and to hear them talk about it, it wasn't like a bunch of people just randomly committed these bad actions one day. It was like, no, it felt like there was a, a movement. It's like there was a force at work, at play in, in our country, just unleashing havoc. I know that as I look uh, in our own culture today, I mean, I don't feel like we're at that, that level yet, like it's genocidal, but I do feel like we look at our culture today and it feels like there are elements on both sides, whether on the left or on the right, uh, there are elements that, man, going, this feels more like an infection this season. And that's why we want to call us continually to this King of Kings campaign that we're in this fall. We want to go, Jesus, how do we follow you faithfully through the 2020 election and just some of the... Uh, currents and stuff that are that are pressing our society that we want to be faithful to you jesus and the reality is john says that jesus is a sponge powerful enough to soak up the sin of the world to deal with the infection in our bloodstream as humanity i love how fleming rutledge puts it she says you know that jesus came not just to deal with our lowercase c our lowercase sins but to deal with our uppercase sin why is Jesus able to accomplish this? Why is he such a powerful sacrifice? Well, it's interesting here. John says that Jesus came before him. He says, Jesus is the one who came after me, but he's above me because he came before me. And you're kind of like, dude, is your GPS broken, John? I'm <laughs> just like, uh, or you need some navigational, directional, coordinational help or something, right? Uh, but no, John's saying, like, even though Jesus is coming chronologically after me, when you guys who he's with, when you're going to meet him, he's actually above me. I mean, he's actually a, an authority over me in my life. And it's because he came before me. He is Yahweh, Israel's God, come now in the flesh. He is the world through whom the world, world he is the word through whom the world was made. It's read earlier in John 1. <clears throat> what John is saying is that the one who takes away the sin of the world is the one through whom the world was made. He's pointing here to how powerful a sacrifice Jesus is. This is why he came. This is why Jesus came, knowing full well he was on his way going to the cross. It's the one through whom the world made came to be the one through whom the sin of the world would be done away with in order that we could be restored and reconciled into union with God. This means that whatever you've done, however gnarly your life has been, your background, things that you're bringing to, to the table, it's not never going to be too much for Jesus. 
He is a powerful enough lamb. An absorbent enough sponge, so to speak, to soak up whatever we've got to bring. And if we find ourselves saying, man, God, if you just really knew what I've done or where I've been, that those things just are too much. You can't say, if you say that, if you say Jesus is too much, then we're either minimizing the power of his sacrifice or we're minimizing the worthiness of his identity or we're minimizing the strength of his desire who's come for us to be with us. Jesus is the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Well, John doesn't start, stop there. He also says that Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the spirit bringer. John's going, I, I baptize you with water, with H2O, right? With water here, but he's going to baptize you with something even greater, the Holy Spirit. John's going, man, I gave you the appetizer, but he's bringing the meal. Like I brought you the sneak preview, but he's playing the feature film. Right? Like I brought you a sign, but he's going to give you the destination. That baptism, what is baptism? Well, it's immersion. The word literally means immersion. So this is like you uh, dunking your donut in your coffee, right? Or cliff driving down into the deep blue water. The goal of immersion or baptism is saturation. The goal of life with Jesus, his goal is saturation in his very presence. That Jesus got soaked with your sin so that you could get soaked with his spirit. Like Jesus got saturated in our problems so that we could be saturated in his presence. That's Jesus' goal, is not just to clean up your behavior or whatever you might have in mind like that. Jesus' goal is actually to saturate and pour out and fill you and consume your life from the inside out with his very presence. I love here too how John says Jesus is the one who baptizes you. He says, I have baptized you with water, but Jesus baptized you with the Spirit. I love baptizing people. Baptizing people is amazing. But I also, when, when that happens, when I baptize, I think, man, I'm, I'm just a sign or a representative here in the sacrament that speaks to this greater reality that Jesus is ultimately the one. I'm dunking you into water, but it's a sign of Jesus who dunks you into his spirit, brings you into new life in his very presence. And baptism is significant. If you're someone who's going, man, I, I want to follow Jesus, or I am following Jesus, and I haven't been baptized yet, this is actually a powerful thing Jesus calls us to, is a sign, as a symbol, as a sacrament of entering into life with him and his people, and going, the goal is actually saturation in his presence, in the Spirit, through the Son, to the Father, life with God. Baptism is a way of going, God, it's not about me, it's about you. I want to make my life around you. If you haven't been baptized yet, man, I would love to invite you. Send me an email. Send us an email at Redemption. Uh, now as we're beginning to move back towards uh, our gatherings and we have our outdoor gatherings, our indoor gatherings coming up, as we look at uh, in our services, man, I would love to get you more information on how to be baptized here and to celebrate that together as a church community, to rally around you and to celebrate that baptism with you. This points to baptism that it's more than just an event, it's an initiation. It's not just a thing that happened way back then. It's an initiation or it's inauguration into a lifestyle, a life that has its goal as being saturated in God's spirit. I believe that our prayer as a church, especially in the season, any time, especially in the season, uh, the three words that came to mind as prayer this week were the words more, deeper, and you. Like Jesus, 
We want more. Like, yes, you've given us your presence. We want more of your presence. We want to go deeper in your presence. We want to be saturated, that it would be uh, coming, oozing from the inside out, your presence. And that it's not just this vague mystery force. We want you, Jesus. We want you and your presence more than anything. I believe God wants to move us from self-reliance to Jesus' reliance. From going, hey, it's not about me, it's about you. And not only for us as individuals, but together as a church, as we kind of move back towards uh, services now and gatherings that are happening, that our goal as we gather, it is not polish, it's not professionalism, it's not our programs and how much we're together, it's his presence. Like our goal is to be a people together saturated by the presence of the living God. John's saying Jesus is the spirit bringer who loves to take us and wash away our sin and baptize us into his very so I'd love for our next discussion question here to process together or reflect on your own around why is Jesus' presence a more powerful goal than just good behavior? What about Jesus' presence? How does that change the game when the goal, God's goal for us is not just getting our behavior in check, but it's actually becoming saturated with Christ's presence? How is that a more powerful motivator, more powerful goal, more powerful end game? Let's discuss that now. All right, well, the final thing I want us to look at today is that Jesus is launching a new exodus, a new exodus. Here's what I mean. Remember the exodus, it's Old Testament, the foundational story of salvation where God delivers his people, Israel, out from Egypt, out from under the land of slavery and fear and death, and he brings them into his kingdom, into freedom, into life as his covenant people. 
And John emphasizes here three Exodus images that help explain who Jesus is, Jesus' identity. Uh, we see here the imagery of the Lamb and of baptism and of Bethany, the place of Bethany, the location where all this is taking place. So let's take a quick look at those. So John says Jesus is the Lamb. Now, a lot of the sacrifices in Israel were like goats and different things, but the most prominent uh, place for the image of the Lamb is the Passover Lamb which was the lamb that on the night before the exodus was about to take place, uh, the lamb was slaughtered and the doorposts were covered and it was a way of going, hey, we're a people covered under the blood of the lamb. This sacrifice uh, is a people marked for Israel's God. Similarly here, John's going, Jesus is the lamb. He's like this greater pastor lamb that's coming and we are, as followers of Jesus, we're becoming a people covered under the blood of the lamb. People identified with Jesus coming under his sacrifice and going, we are his John also uses the imagery of baptism here. Baptism is central in this passage. Uh, John the Baptist's baptism and Jesus' baptism, and that was also an Exodus image. If you remember the story, after the people were covered in the blood of the Lamb, they, as they were leaving Egypt, God parted the waters of the Red Sea to bring his people through. And this was the, one of the main Jewish roots for the imagery of baptism when they would practice it. And so it was this Exodus imagery of going, uh, we are a people who've been brought out from under the Gentile powers, under the powers of sin and slavery and fear and death, and we've been brought into life as God's covenant people and his kingdom. He's brought us up through the waters. It's part of what baptism represented. So we see here this Exodus image for followers of Jesus going, man, we have come through the waters, not only uh, the, the waters of baptism, but the sign of Jesus bringing us into the life-giving freedom of his spirit, his presence. Out from uh, slavery to the ways of old and the, the, the powers of our world that would oppress and tear us down and rip us apart, and God's going, no, I'm out to bring you out from the slavery to sin and fear and death and bring you into the freedom of life with me, saturated in my presence. So we've got the lamb, we've got baptism, and the third Exodus image that we have here is where all this has taken place, the location of uh, Bethany near the Jordan. Now, uh, this location in the Old Testament, it's right near the spot where uh, Israel came in and entered the Promised Land, where the Jordan rivers were also parted as they came through the, the wilderness on the other side of the Exodus and entered into the Promised Land. There's this image here of going, Jesus has come to uh, reclaim Jerusalem, so to speak, and to establish his kingdom in the world. Like Jesus is the invasion of heaven into earth, like reclaiming what the enemy has tried to tear apart. And similarly, we as his people, uh, we come under his blood as the lamb. We are parted through his water, parted through the waters in baptism. He brings us to himself and we become participants with him as he is on this mission to reclaim and restore what sin and the enemy tried to steal and take away. This new exodus means Jesus is God come to save his people. Jesus is God come to save his people. This is one of the reasons John the Baptist was so controversial in his day, was because he was essentially saying there is a new exodus afoot. God is coming to save his people, and he is doing it in Jesus. Jesus is God come to save you. And it raises the question, what are you under today? What powers of sin or slavery or fear or death or things that are holding you back, what things are you under? under today. I, I had somebody once tell me, like, man, I could never believe in God because God is just a crutch. 
God is a crutch for those who aren't strong enough to stand on their own and who just need that extra help that relies on, on something else other than them. And I kind of laughed and thought, I'm like, dude, for me, God ain't a crutch. God's a stretcher. <laughs> like, like, I don't just need a little bit of help hobbling along. Like, I need the whole enchilada because I am laid out flat on my back and I got nothing I can do unless, God, you come and deliver me. Gospel, part of it, it's about going. Like, it's not about me, God. I can't save myself. I don't even need to just crutch. I need the stretcher. God, I need you to deliver me. And the good news of the gospel is that God is all about coming to deliver you. It's the freedom in the gospel. Just go, it's not about me. It's about you, God. I need you. And here's the crazy thing about Jesus. It's the crazy thing about Jesus. He loves to do it. Like everyone expected a Messiah who's going to come and in one sense kind of make it about themselves. Like they would make it about God, but it would be about their power and their glory as they establish God's kingdom in the world. What people do not expect is Jesus. When Jesus comes and he explains his mission, surprisingly, he says, it's not about me. It's about you, in a sense, right? You're the reason that I've come. Not to, uh, man, not to self-exalt, but to lay down my life for you. Jesus comes to us, explains his mission, and says, man, the reason I've come, it's not me, it's you. I've come to lay down my life for you, to lift you up and to raise you up with me, to meet you in the depths of your condition and to raise you up with me. And Jesus could have made it about himself. Like, he's the one person who's worth doing it, right? Like, as we've just seen in John 1, he is the word through whom all things were made. He is the light who brings life to all people. He is the dwelling of God, come to all man. If anyone in the world has a right to make it about themselves, it's Jesus. He could have done it, and it would have been right. And yet Jesus came going, hey, I'm not here for me. I'm here for you, to lay down my life for you. His mission is to make us his people. I love, I'll leave you with this, I love verse 29 where John says, John the Baptist, he saw Jesus coming toward him. He'd been waiting, expecting, and hoping, and he saw Jesus coming toward him. And I wonder, like, do you see Jesus coming toward you today? Do you see Jesus coming toward you because Jesus is the pursuing God, the God who's going, he's not out waiting for us to kind of get our act together and go find him. He's the God who has come to find us. And when you experience that, when you experience God's pursuit, he came to bear your sin and to bring you his spirit and to saturate you in life, to take away all the junk you've done and to bring you the goodness of his very presence. And when you see that, when you taste that, when you encounter that, you can't help but go, God, it ain't about me. It's about you. I love when uh, Holly, my wife, and I, we first started dating. I remember our first date, our first time out together, and one of the main things that struck me about her was that she talked about her story. You know, usually you're on a date, and someone, you know, they're trying to show you how great they are and how, how wonderful they are and how polished they are, whatever else. And the, the main thing I heard was like, man, here's what a mess I've been, and here's how amazing. Jesus has been. That's our story, church. Like, our story is not about how great we've been. It's about how amazing Jesus is. For us to lift up our voices and declare, it's not me, Jesus. It's you. You are worthy of all glory and honor and praise. 
powerful irony is when we do that, it's there that we truly find ourselves. Because we hear the God of the universe calling to us, his daughter and son. So the invitation this morning is to say, Jesus, it's not me, it's you. To make it about him, to say, in Christ alone, my hope is found. It's just, you are my strength, you are my light, you are my all. For us to lift up our voices and worship as his people and declare that he is our everything. Jesus is the sin bearer who came to take away your sin. He is the spirit bringer who came to saturate you with his presence. And for those who've prepared the elements for communion, as we come to the bread and the wine, we come to his body given for us, and his blood shed for us. This is the only place where Christ, the one who could legitimately in the universe say, make it about himself, came and said, it's not me, this is for you. I'm giving my life for you so that I can take away your sin, I can bring you my presence, I can saturate you with my life and we can be in it together forever. So let's come together, redemptionist people of God, let's, let's worship him now. Let's declare that in Christ alone our hope is found.